Welcome to the Unseen Book Club. If you're tuning in in October of 2022, you probably noticed a fairly long hiatus since our last episode. It's been a busy fall for both of us. We have some episodes on deck, but until then, we wanted to release some bonus content. Back in August, the Unseen Book Club hosted Emmy O'Brien for a reading event in Minneapolis as part of the promotion for Everything for Everyone. The event went really well. We sold an entire case of books, raised $170 for Black and Pink Minneapolis, and so we thought it would be fun to do a short debrief of the thing for those who couldn't make it. It was a special event for a couple reasons. First, it was hosted at the Landing Strip, which is a very cool outdoor community space in South Minneapolis that's been a center of gravity for a lot of interesting art, discourse, and meetups. Second, we wanted to do something outside of the regular reading and Q&A format, so my collaborator Sasha and I decided to put the audience through the ringer of a tabletop fantasy roleplay-inspired activity, and it was really fun. So without further ado, here's Max interviewing Sasha and me. Um, hi, Sasha. Hi. Hey. So this is really exciting. I thought it was so cool when Dan first told me that y'all were doing this role play activity for the Everything for Everyone book reading, especially because when we went to their book reading in Brooklyn at, at Word is Change, uh, Emmy and Amon mentioned that one of the initial impetuses for the for Everything is for Everyone is was in fact a like role-playing game that they played together. Uh, so it's really cool to see that coming together. Would you describe just really quickly the activity that you came up for the audience before the reading itself? Sasha, do you want to take that? Yes, definitely. Yeah. So the way that we thought of making the activity was kind of like a growing thing. And honestly, it kind of changed as we were doing it a little bit. But the idea that we came up with was to think of something that would be like step-by-step step enough that it wouldn't like lose people in endless permit, you know, just thought experiments or like endless possibility. We wanted it to have a certain amount of constraint and a certain level of like uh, progression so that each step was constrained enough to give people like a meaningful playing field, but also open-ended enough that it allowed people to really dream and think open open-endedly about the questions we were providing. So we took the idea of the, of the book of, you know, setting it in this relatively near future, um, couple decades down the line where all these crises have already happened, basically just taking the premise of, of everything for everyone and inviting people to kind of, uh, first think of themselves as embedded in that future, try to think of themselves like what they would be doing, where they might be like, what kind of things that uh, they think they would flourish at in that moment and what kind of things they think they would really struggle with. And this was like an activity just in inviting people to just sit with these questions and think on their own. And that was kind of the first step. And then we kind of grouped people according to where they were more or less. Uh, we allowed people to move around a little bit, but we asked people to group themselves into like groups of four or five. And then we invited them to share what they had just thought about, like what their skills were, introduce themselves, all of that. And then we started handing out step-by-step -step different 
complications to uh, what this situation that we had set up. So we we started with a scenario that each group was kind of assigned. Um, so, for instance, one group was sort of the agriculture group. They had to think of like. Um, how would you organize food production and distribution um, in in the kind of world that you were just imagining? Uh, another group was tasked with like thinking about how to use maybe underutilized buildings. Another group was thinking about how to organize uh, education and like pedagogical experiments and things like that. So they were they were fairly broad, but they were specific enough that it um, it kind of. It, we tried not to allow people to just um, to go off on a flight of fancy um, or get lost in endless questions uh, and back and forth. And once they kind of settled on an idea that they were satisfied with, with the initial scenario, like, uh, you know, how are you going to produce and distribute food in such and such way? Then we started to throw complications at that. We gave them a crisis moment that was tailored to each particular scenario that kind of flipped the script, introduced an unexpected element that we hoped would be just another layer of, um, of yeah, trying to imagine how they might respond in a certain situation, maybe trying to bring out a little bit of those strengths and weaknesses that people had talked about earlier, like trying to imagine how they would, how they would react to, to a curveball being thrown at them like that. I'd like to read at least one of the basic scenarios and uh, conflicts that go along with it. Cause I think that really helps see kind of what the kinds of things you're looking at and that the people who are there ended up enacting in this role play or talking about. Um, so I'm looking at E as the communes formed, many people left the suburbs to live in more densely populated areas where co- coordination and distribution was more easily facilitated. Many of those suburban structures are now overgrown and abandoned. People who remain are choosing to live with this decaying infrastructure. How might we utilize these spaces? And then this is kind of the conflict. The area you are planning to utilize has been targeted for what is clearly a series of strategic arson. You do not know who has been sabotaging your efforts or why, but you suspect that they are connected to some of the communities living in this area. How do you address this without stressing your relationships or sowing mistrust? So I I think this is great, right? Like my impression is you gave time for them to talk about this first one um, or like you explained Sasha and then they're kind of hit with this conflict. um, And then later the crises, which are drought, reactionary movements, things like that. So there's a few stages um, that builds a sense of story without um, with very basic, you know, if we think about it in game terms, very basic mechanics of just kind of a progression, but without knowing how uh, the people who are talking to it about it have to respond before. Um, what I what I'm really curious about, and I think Dan, this connects to what you know. This connects to the landing strip as a DIY space and just being in um, Minneapolis. Like, I'm really curious about the extent to which the discussions that came out of this felt local so that they felt situated in the geography or the situation of, you know, the the Minneapolis, St. Paul or Minnesota area. Like if you're talking about suburban structures, do people start talking about specific suburbs? Are they talking about specific food networks, specific waterways, you know, everything that comes up in these conversations that come into play? Yes. And 
I this I'm very glad you asked this question because I recall when Dan and I were walking around the park, this was a big part of the discussion. Um, I remember expressing to Dan that I had felt some discussions I've been at recently, like book groups, and uh, there was a reading recently where the audience was invited to reflect on the history of the uprising here and people's personal experiences and things like that. And you said that was by an out of an author who had not been in Minneapolis in 2020. Like, yeah. And he was like curious to like gather people's reactions. Like how does it compare to, you know, where I'm coming from and all this stuff. And I had noted like the last couple of ones I've been to, kind of no matter what the premise was or like the opening that was being brought up by the author, that there was something about particular like hot points of the past that people were having a lot of trouble getting past. Like uh, a lot of it had to do with like questions of truth, like what really happened on this day at this intersection, uh, you know, these, these really like hyper local specific um, questions that had started to become really, uh, circular and like, you know, there was a sense of movement cause you could, you could get in a conversation with someone and feel like they were starting to see your side, but then, you know, then it, they go back to everyone just kind of goes back to their comfortable position and it, it just started to feel stale and kind of like sad and not very imaginative and definitely not moving anything forward. So I recall that being a big part of our discussion is like, how can we kind of actually try to break away from those, um, those types of, yeah, when we start to feel way too attached and frozen in a particular time and place and reimagine the kind of local environment that we're in using totally different parameters and totally different questions. And another thing we talked about is that that hyper-localism sometimes appears as like people, maybe in, in, in these conversations, I should say, people oftentimes get super attached to like what happened on this particular block when the uprising was this massive event, you know, like if there's any characteristic to it, it's that it was this really generalized thing that was really spread and very, um, opaque in a lot of different ways. Um, and so it's always curious to me that people like, you know, fixate on what happened on Lake and Hiawatha or something. Um, uh, and so this was, this experiment felt like a way to invite people to think about, not only think about something that hasn't happened yet. So you can kind of be freed from this like neurotic concern for the, for the truth of the past or something. Um, but also to invite people to think about some of these spaces in a totally different way and reimagine their, um, the way they might interact in a different future and get away from their block and think about St. Paul or the suburbs or somewhere else than the place that they live. You said that people were talking about local situations. Yeah. Like in the, actually in the suburb one specifically, um, I was very happy that the group that got that one got that yeah. question. I was just in, interested to hear what they would think about the suburbs. Yeah, it was fascinating. I mean, like there were all kinds of different discussions happening. They were kind of thinking like, why I just, I recall walking by and listening for a few minutes and them being like, like debating the terms of the question. Like, why would we ever go to the suburbs? Like still, this is kind of like the question, but then they're like, okay, but the question, this prompt, this prompt is asking us to imagine, like, we're going to do this. So let's stop thinking that way. And like, let's get into thinking, okay, what are we going to actually do? Uh, so yeah, even in that brief encounter, I started to see a, a little bit of trying to think outside of the, the normal parameters. 
That's that's so interesting. When I when I was walking around, my ears were tuned to s- certain frequencies of conversation, and I I don't think I picked up on regional or localized specifics. When Max and I interviewed Michelle and Iman, and then again at this uh, reading event, it struck me how they were interested in decontextualizing, uh, like the utopian imagination from specific reference points. I don't know, that felt like a such a important way to think about like creating space for imagination. Like there's both a trust in the historical legacy of mass struggle and collective communal enterprise that we don't need to be attached or rooted or always seeking a, a referent in the historical factual past in order to imagine something different. You don't think your politics is about just constantly and forever relitigating the Spanish Civil War? Uh, I mean, maybe when I was 18. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, uh, but seriously, I agree. And I think that's one reason I asked that question about the local situatedness is because of my reading of everything for everyone. It's not about you know, relitigating, but it is, it is, it's very geographic, you know, and especially living in New York and having done so for a long time, specifically like in terms of New York, like even the first chapter starting out at Hunts Point, which is where most of the produce in New York comes through the market, you know, but is not the, anything like the glitziest or like considered this kind of center area of New York. It's in the Bronx, but it's like in terms of flows of, I mean, commodities and of access to life-giving goods um it's extremely important so yeah i I, you know and that made me think about that and um yeah i think that's a really good i think you know also what you both seem to be describing is the value of the game as this narrative form also you know thinking about the future but also you know one of the reasons that i like games and and Dan and I have talked about this a lot outside of the podcast, but um, specifically like tabletop gaming um, and role-playing games is there's these mechanisms to disrupt a desire to control a story or, or outcome, whether that's dice or even in this case, like so simply and well done, just something happens that you don't expect something else happens. But as someone who's talking through the role play, um, you have to respond to it. Um, and I think that creates a much very, a different type of thinking than one in which we are simply given a prompt and then asked to respond fully. It creates a sense of play around it. And that's what we need in so much thinking. Like, you know, I think play is so important in thinking strategically and thinking, you know, in a revolutionary way, because otherwise we fall back on these kind of like terrible, uh, <laughs> the terrible training we've been subjected to all our lives. Sasha, I have a question for you. You know, we, we worked on this together. I'm wondering if how you thought about designing some of these scenarios when when you were doing it. So for listeners, the division of labor just happened to be, the, you, you came up with a ton of really good, um, prompts. And then I came in later and wrote a bunch of responses. So I, I was, I ended up writing a lot of the crises and you ended up writing 
the, the original scenarios. So yeah, how did you approach that task? I think the first thing that crossed my mind was wanting to cover a broad swath. So like trying to think about, okay, we're in this scenario. Um, what are the kind of like reproductive and um, like glaring things that are going to be issues in that time? And like in in the broadest way possible. So, you know, not just thinking about the, the kind of the obvious ones, like, uh, like, you know, reactionary violence or something like that, but like, uh, or like, how are you going to eat? But also, um, you know, how is, how are like certain aspects of health going to be organized? Like really daily things. Um, uh, yeah. How is like education going to be organized? Like all this kind of stuff that you take for granted um, that would come under come into a crisis situation. Um, that was the main consideration was kind of trying to cover different bases and, um, make sure that, you know, in the scenario that maybe somebody was there and was like, I have absolutely nothing to say about this. And maybe, or maybe the opposite of thought about this way too much. And this is like actually not a game for me. This is boring <laughs> or it sucks to think about this, uh, would be to give some mobility to people, you know, just like in real life, hopefully that people could be like, you know what, I think I'm going to actually work on this other problem. Uh, so that was definitely a consideration. Um, otherwise just trying to think about, that mixture of what I said earlier, that mixture of constraint and imagination that I think is crucial to a good game, that a game has to have constraint or else you don't bring in the strategic aspect to it. It doesn't feel strategic. It just feels like infinity and infinity is kind of boring. Um, but it has to be open enough that you can, you can actually choose or you can actually think speculatively about what uh, given these conditions, you know, what might be possible to do? And you have to be able to think a little bit open. So it couldn't be so overwhelming that it was like, there's an obvious answer to what you're supposed to do. Um, I wanted to leave it open that people could think imaginatively of things that, that we could have never thought of. Um, but yeah, it can't be too, too much. I love that. Are there any, we, we don't have a lot of time left, but are there any other like moments that came up that memorable or surprising or react responses that you like just following up on that might not have expected people enjoying it <laughs> yeah that was that was pretty validating um as i was walking around one of the groups that was discussing one of the props that i had written and given kind of a heavier theme to i overheard some really interesting discussions and observations and it made me reflect about the responsibility of, of imagination, I guess. Um, I'll read it. So this one was intended to, to link together themes of health and spirituality. A generation of revolutionary elders is rapidly declining due to degenerative disease. Most have decided to pursue a death with dignity path in order to free up medical resources for younger people and refugees. What kinds of spiritual and social rituals around grief, death, and generational passing have you developed? And while I was walking around, they were engaging with this prompt, but also critiquing it and observing, I think very accurately, something that I had not seen in writing it, that this premise that care resources are scarce that they can be modeled with like as a zero sum game and so that the elderly or 
people whose health is declining and require a lot of care and upkeep uh, have an ethical reason to free up resources by ending their lives or letting their lives end. Like that contains so many assumptions of ableist or like even eugenic concepts are like operating in this scenario. So yeah, the, the conversation was good. And I talked to that group and they were like, oh no, this, this is a great prompt, but this is how we're approaching it. I think that that engagement made me think about what it means to bring our own assumptions, values, ideas, and project them into the future. And like, that's what we're all engaged with when we read books, like everything for everyone. And when we engage in collective processes of imagination, like role-playing games. I wish I had been able to be there. <laughs> Sounds amazing. Yeah, you, you would have had a blast. Well, there's been some idle talk about trying to release these prompts or this uh, role-play activity in some kind of form. So I don't know how idle actually, but maybe, maybe the listeners will be able to see it in a more complete form at some point. I think that would be really cool. And Sasha, thank you for coming and talking to us on the show. We'll have to have you back for a longer reading and session at some point. It's been so nice to have you here and uh, and hear your thoughts on this event. And the, the even just reading the text is so amazing. And um, I'm sure it's, um, it's really incredible as a collective activity. Thanks for listening to the Unseen Book Club. Sasha writes extensively about madness, psychiatry, and capitalism on his blog, unsoundmind.org, which is truly fantastic, and you should definitely check it out. Coming out in a few weeks is our discussion of The Tertiary by Raquel Salas Rivera, and after that, The Whole by Jose Revueltas. 